everyone, and welcome back to Airwave, a student-led podcast to discuss all things anesthesia for pre-clerk and junior clerk medical students. My name is Anushka, and joining me today is the amazing Alexa. Hey, everyone. It's Alexa. We're back again with another case study, and I'm so excited to do this because today we're going to be applying the concepts of what we learned in a previous episode on neuromuscular blockers. And spoiler, we're going to be doing a case on myasthenia gravis. And I've actually never seen that in person. So I'm super excited for today's case. Oh, that's so cool. I definitely haven't seen it either. So it's going to be super interesting to try to work through this together. Um, And if you haven't had the chance to listen to the episode on neuromuscular blockers, make sure you check it out before we take on this case. And as always, this podcast is not intended for medical advice, just good old-fashioned medical education. All right, so I think let's not waste time and let's get right to the case. So you have a 33-year-old female who is to undergo an urgent laparoscopic appendectomy. She was previously healthy until two years ago where she presented with extraocular weakness and was found to have myasthenia gravis. The diagnosis was confirmed with subsequent anti-acetylcholine antibody testing. She's currently moderately symptomatic with continued extraocular weakness and proximal weakness in her upper limbs, but she hasn't developed yet any bulbar weakness. And if you're not familiar with the classification of myasthenia gravis, don't worry. That's not something I even know off the top of my head. But all of these symptoms classify her as class 2. She's also never had a myasthenic crisis and is followed closely by her neurologist. She has no other chronic medical conditions or autoimmune diseases. Her only surgical history was a C-section for a breach presentation that was done under a spinal anesthetic four years ago. And for medications, she's on pyridostigmine for symptom control. And she specifically denies being on corticosteroids. She has no known drug allergies. When you assess her airway, she has a malum patty score of 2, and the rest of her airway exam is reassuring. And her cardiorespiratory exam is normal on top of that. The pre-op blood work that you did was within normal limits, and because you are a very astute medical student, you review her previous CT scan and confirm the absence of a thymoma, which can be associated with myasthenia gravis. And so now the question is, how will you manage this patient during the course of her operation? Just to provide some context, myasthenia gravis is basically an autoimmune disorder that results in less um, acetylcholine receptors that are there at the neuromuscular junction. So because of this, the number of activated postsynaptic receptors are probably not sufficient enough to trigger a muscle contraction. Um, And to add to that, with repeated stimulation, there's also a decrease of acetylcholine at this junction. Um, which manifests itself as like the classic weakness and fatigability of skeletal or bulbar muscles, as we mentioned before. So as you can imagine, this can definitely present as a challenge when considering what neuromuscular blockers to even use. 
And this case is really interesting because we get to take what we learned during the previous episode on neuromuscular blockers and how the depolarizing and non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers work a little bit differently and apply it within the context of the pathophysiology of myasthenia gravis. And in terms of planning what we would do for this patient, again, it's really important to look at the pathophysiology, but also keep in mind what our goals are for this patient and how we can mitigate um, any risks associated with our approach. Yeah, that's definitely a great place to start. I definitely agree with you there, Alexa. So I guess thinking about this, what would be some of the overall considerations that we would have for this patient? And how would um, this patient having my senior gravis change our management? I think once we've explored those concepts, we can apply what we've learned about neuromuscular blockers and then create a plan moving forward. So starting with the preoperative assessment, like we saw in the case above, this would involve evaluating how severe this patient's myasthenia gravis is and what their treatment regimen is really like. So our primary concern at this point is, does this patient have the ability to protect and maintain their airway postoperatively? Bulbar or skeletal muscle weakness can definitely increase the risk of aspiration or perioperative respiratory failure. Um, and this can happen, unfortunately, if the patient has a more severe form of myasthenia gravis or if they have a thymoma, which can occur in these patients. So luckily, as was mentioned, she has not developed um, bulbar weakness, and we mentioned as well that her CT was negative. If available, another important investigation that we could look at would be her pulmonary function test. So this would be used to look for um, if she has a poor forced vital capacity, which is shown to suggest a higher likelihood of requiring post-op ventilation. Man, Anushka, I really like what you just said because it shows that even when you're in anesthesia um, doing the pre-op assessment of a patient and not in the trauma bay, it's always A, B, C's first. Always, always, always. And so your first consideration here is, are do we have concerns about this patient's ability to protect her airway as a result of her disease? And also looking at pulmonary function testing um, in terms of, is this patient able to breathe adequately? And as we mentioned, myasthenia gravis predisposes a patient to have weaker and more fatigued muscles. And so they require careful post-operative monitoring to ensure that their emergence goes smoothly. And intraoperatively as well, what you need to think about is having a reduced amount of um, available acetylcholine receptors and consider how that is going to change the efficacy of the neuromuscular blockers that you use during surgery. And so to get into that a little bit more, we mentioned in the previous episode that neuromuscular blockers can either be non-depolarizing or depolarizing, for which the prototype is sexnilcholine. And going back to the pharmacology of those agents, remember that non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers function essentially as competitive antagonists for acetylcholine. And so as a result, myasthenia gravis patients are extremely sensitive to non-depolarizing blockers like rocuronium because there already is a reduced amount of receptors. And so out-competing acetylcholine happens even more easily um, in this case. And so you would definitely look to use a much smaller dose of a non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocker like rocuronium in the case of a patient with myasthenia gravis. 
That's a great point. And unfortunately, just to make things a little more complicated, in addition to being sensitive to these non-depolarizing uh, muscular blockers, my senior gravis patients are also resistant to succinylcholine. So that's our depolarizing neuromuscular blocker. So just to recap, succinylcholine works like acetylcholine. Um, it's actually structured just like two molecules of ACH bound together. So it works by binding these receptors to prevent reactivation. But if the amount of functional receptors are already limited, then succinylcholine can't exert its effect in the same way that it would in another patient who has a greater amount of these receptors. So we can take a dose of succinylcholine around two to three times as much as normal to elicit just the same response. Wow, that was a lot of information. I guess now we can start to use some of these considerations regarding neuromuscular blockers to come up with some goals for our patient. Alexa, did you have any in mind to start us off? Yeah, I can definitely think of a few things that we would want to optimize or manage uh, for this patient. So based on what we've mentioned so far, I think our number one consideration, again, with the airway is minimize aspiration. And this is so important in patients with myasthenia gravis due to their weakened musculature. And sometimes pretreatment with medications such as metoclopramide or ranitidine, um, which are essentially uh, motili- gastric motility agents, or even using a rapid sequence induction technique, can be used to minimize the risk of aspiration. So that's definitely one thing that I would want to do with this patient. All right. And then I guess the second thing that you'd want to do is in addition to minimizing aspiration, you'd want to minimize the risk of respiratory failure. So judicious use of neuromuscular blockers and opioids are required to prevent perioperative respiratory failure. Additionally, it doesn't hurt to anticipate the need for postoperative ventilation, especially in the situation where a myasthenic or cholinergic crisis can happen. For sure. Yeah, this is definitely a patient where you would want to check with the ICU if there is a bed available uh, before the case, just in the event that you would need one, rather than finding out the other way around and being in a sticky situation. So again, with anesthesia, it's all about forward planning um, and thinking of the patient in front of you. The other goal that I would have for this patient um, would be to minimize the risk of myasthenic or cholinergic crisis. And so a good preoperative assessment is key to understanding the medication regimen that the patient is on, as well as gathering any information on surgeries that that may have had in the past. And for those who um, are less familiar with what a myasthenic crisis is. Essentially, it's a complication that presents as worsening weakness, which is exacerbated by infections, emotional stress, drugs, or even surgery itself. And someone with exacerbated muscle weakness in their thoracic cavity can go into full-on respiratory failure. So it's something we really want to keep in mind and avoid if at all possible. And in these patients, there is definitely a risk of a myasthenic or cholinergic crisis. And these crises are life-threatening and require careful monitoring in intensive settings like the PACU or the ICU. And once you've sort of planned for um, these crises and thought about what you might do just in case they happen, the fourth goal would probably want to be to optimize neuromuscular function. So depending on the situation, 
um, acetylcholinesterase inhibitors can be used uh, to accelerate and speed up the recovery of normal neuromuscular transmission following using some of these neuromuscular blockers. Especially since we've mentioned how myasthenia gravis patients are sensitive to these, having an inhibitor would be really handy um, just to make this process a little bit better once they do finish their procedures. And based on these goals that we established, we can now consider what our options are and how they can be optimized to best suit the patient. And just like everything else in anesthesia, it's never one size fits all. So this is the fun part. Now we have um, our drugs of choice, we've considered our goals, and now we have to decide what would be the best for this case. So when it comes to neuromuscular blockers, again, our two main options here are the non-depolarizing agents or depolarizing agents. So we've got short-acting non-depolarizing ones like ROC and long-acting ones like pancuronium, but we said that my senior patients are more sensitive to these. So they can be used, but at a much smaller dose than normal. Careful monitoring is required, though, just to make sure that there is a lower risk of respiratory failure. So typically, the long-acting ones are best avoided, and rocuronium is preferred. And the nice thing about using rocuronium is that there is a newer method of reversal that is available, and it's called Sugamidex. And if you've ever seen Sugamidex in practice, it is really remarkable just how fast it's able to reverse that neuromuscular blockade. Um, and how Sigamidex works is a little bit different. It doesn't increase the amount of acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction. But what it actually does is it encapsulates and inactivates rocaronium directly, which allows for a faster and more reliable reversal. Personally, I can't wait for the day that Sigamidex is off patent and it can be used ubiquitously um, in the OR because right now it is currently expensive but it's definitely a nice drug to have in your back pocket and um, its use can definitely be justified in these patients who are a lot more sensitive, like we have really emphasized here, um, more sensitive to the uh, non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers. That's so true. Honestly, all the amazing qualities of Sigamidex really do offer the possibility for using this drug in patients who are expected to run into issues with post-op ventilation, whether it be my senior gravis or any other sorts of issues. But like Alexa mentioned, unfortunately, Sigamidex is still kind of expensive, but it is starting to become the standard of care in these patients. So that's super exciting. And then we have other options on the table too. So we have our depolarizing neuromuscular blockers. And like I said, the prototype of that is succinylcholine. The thing is, it really isn't our go-to option because like we talked about, these patients are quite resistant to them. Um, an argument can be made for its use in patients with milder forms, but especially in this particular surgery where you're doing a laparoscopic surgery, where it's really important to have those optimal surgical conditions by having uh, paralysis of the abdominal musculature might not be the best option here. Yeah, for sure. And like, as you can see, there clearly isn't a right answer with what neuromuscular blockers can specifically be used in a patient with myasthenia gravis. Um, so generally, like what kind of procedure is being done definitely plays a large role in what's being used. So if the procedure isn't um, like requiring abdominal relaxants, for example, then some anesthesiologists prefer to actually just avoid them altogether. Oh, interesting. So what do they do instead? 
So I was reading that they actually use potent inhaled agents like subofluorine to facilitate tracheal intubation. Um, so it does provide some relaxation for surgery, but not typically like to the level that you would need for some of these abdominal laparoscopic procedures. Right. And that makes a lot of sense. If you think about the five A's of um, anesthesia, and I think we talked about this in a previous episode, that your volatile anesthetics actually do provide some degree of muscular relaxation, obviously not to the extent of full-blown neuromuscular blockers, um, but that is definitely within uh, some of their pharmacological effects, which is really cool. Um, And like we talked about before, this patient here is going a, undergoing a laparoscopic procedure. And so it might not necessarily be um, applicable here to use a volatile anesthetic. Um, so an anesthesiologist may prefer to use a low dose of a short-acting neuromuscular blocker like rocaronium. Um, the important thing here is if you were to go that route, you really got to monitor your patients. And the uh, train of form monitoring to look at twitches is really not optional within the situation. You would really need to keep a close eye on that. Um, and you'd also want to reverse your patient with Sugamidex. And like we touched upon earlier in the episode, with these patients, it's really important to think about disposition before the actual surgery and the possibility of requiring ICU care thereafter if there is prolonged muscle paralysis. And this is important now more than ever before with our ICUs being absolutely over capacity right now with COVID. Um, And yes, elective cases are being canceled, but you could have a patient with myasthenia gravis coming in for urgent surgery like this patient for an appendectomy. So you always have to think about that. Yeah, exactly. I think those points are really great. And what you said, Alexa, at the end there really sums it up. So muscle relaxation can definitely occur safely if needed, um, depending on the procedure, as long as the considerations and the goals that we've mentioned are taken into account, as well as the post-operative monitoring of the potential crises that could come up. So as a pretty common theme that has come up a lot in our podcast and about anesthesia in general is that mitigating and planning for potential risks are key um, and following the plan is really important. And there you have it, our second patient case episode. We truly hope you found it helpful to apply some of the pharmacological concepts that we've been exploring. And that was fun. It's nice to be able to challenge yourself with what you already know and see if you're actually able to apply it to a patient case. I definitely agree. Um, I just want to thank everyone for tuning in and spending time uh, listening to this episode with us. And I can't wait to hear what our next episode will be. And as always, we'd like to thank our content editor, Dr. Sean Jha. And this podcast wouldn't have been possible without the general support of Dr. Daniel Cordovani. So stay tuned for updates on our website and Twitter account at Airwave Podcast. And if you're enjoying our content, feel free to give us a rating or comments on the podcast platform that you're currently using. And until next time, keep working hard, stay healthy, stay safe, take some nice deep breaths, and count back from 10.